0: Good morning. My name is Tara. I lead a community group with my husband Zach on Wednesday evenings over at Fifth and Osborne, so we'd love to have you. Today's scripture is 1 Peter 3 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Lord, I pray that you would speak through Pastor Tim today and help us to open our minds and our hearts to what you would have. Holy Spirit, please help us to understand this passage and to soften our hearts to just what you want us to learn today. Jesus, I ask that you mend broken hearts, help us to be open with our eyes and ears to your word, and God, please be with Pastor Tim as he speaks to us, and God, I just ask that you bless everything in this uh, service today, from the children's helpers all the way to our greeters and the set-up and tear-down team. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: Uh, we are back in the book of First Peter. And if you're new to church or new to the Bible, you want to go to the back of your Bible and just flip a few books over. And so go to the back, you'll see Revelation. Flip a few books over and you'll get to First Peter. We've been in the book of First Peter since January 10th. And some of you are thinking, and we're only on chapter 3. Well, it's because we don't want to miss anything. That The book of First Peter, if you've been reading along with us, and I hope you have, is a rich, rich book. Every chunk, every verse, there's something in there. And we've seen there's some confusing things in there. But there's also some powerful things in there for our relationships with Jesus. And the consistent theme we've seen throughout the book that we're going to come back to today is this living hope that we have in Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. And to be clear, it is a living hope. It's not hope in a ritual. It's not hope in a tradition. It's not hope in morality. It's hope in firmly rooted in the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we have a living hope because we have a living Savior, amen? We have a living hope, even in the midst of suffering. And listen, that's something we are going to celebrate on Easter in just a few weeks. But that's something we celebrate today and every day. Even when things aren't going right, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of strife, we can celebrate that Jesus is alive. He is our hope. That's our bedrock. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. If you're new to this thing, if you're new to church, we're so glad you're here. You need to know that's where it all starts. That's where you have to start. And that's what Peter continues in this morning. We said it earlier on, the week two of this sermon series, but in Jesus we have a future hope that changes our present suffering, that it changes your current circumstances, that it changes your perspective, your position, your power in the midst of these circumstances. It's transformative in our lives. And that's the context we're in. Peter's gonna give us two examples in the midst of this. The first one is probably one of the most powerful examples in all of the Bible. The second one is one of the most confusing in all of the Bible. And so put your seatbelt on. It's going to be fun. First, let's look at verse 18. Let's read it again. It says For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So just stopping right there in verse 18, Peter reminds us that the very foundation of our faith is rooted in suffering. But it's not their suffering, and it's not your suffering. It's the suffering of the one who came before. That our our foundation of our faith is rooted in suffering, but it's not our suffering, it's the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I just want to stop for a second and just imagine what this would have meant to these people who are reading this letter. We have the author, Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He knew Jesus firsthand. He saw him die. And the same guy is writing to them in the midst of their suffering. We think about 30 years after that. And remember, these are a people who are Exiles. We read that at the beginning of the book. They're exiles, they're dispersed in different places from their home. They're suffering, they're experiencing persecution for their faith. And about 30 years into this thing, Peter writes this letter to point them to their hope. Most likely they would have been reading this letter in a home, gathered up together, excited to have a message, a letter from the Apostle Peter in the midst of their plight. And so just imagine a group of people in a home experiencing suffering and they get this letter and they would have read it all at once. We don't do that for time's sake, but they would have. They would have read it all at once as a letter to them. And they would have been amazed and encouraged and challenged by this living hope that's in the midst of their current suffering. That Peter is saying, your Savior has been there. That he knows what this is like. That he experienced it firsthand. To the point of death on the cross. That he can relate to you. Listen, this morning, if you're in the midst of suffering, if you're coming out of suffering, if you're about to go in suffering, you need to know that we have a Savior who can relate. That none of you will suffer more than Jesus Christ. That he suffered to the point of death. And the text says he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. The righteous for the unrighteous. The unrighteous is you. The unrighteous is us. And maybe that's uncomfortable. If you're new to this thing, you think, well, hey, I do some good things. I'm here today. Isn't that enough, Tim? You need to know that all have sinned and fall short. And that includes you and that includes me. The righteous son of God, Jesus, came for you, the unrighteous even in the midst of your suffering. It says that brings us to God. That's our hope, that this brings us to God, that you don't have to go in this alone, that the creator, the one who made you in his image, that he's come back for you to restore you to him, to bring you to himself through the death of Jesus Christ, that that gave them hope, that should give us hope. If you're not a Christian, this is where it starts. That you trust in Jesus Christ, that he brings you to God, the righteous for the unrighteous. Listen, we can stop here. If you don't know Jesus, none of the rest of this will make sense to you. That if you don't know him, that you would stop listening to me and start talking to Jesus now. I won't be offended. (laughs) You can start talking to Jesus and say, I believe in you, Jesus, that you died for my sin that you rose in victory, and I want to follow you. You do that now, and you have been brought back to God. Do you see that? The creator of the universe that's available to you now. I encourage you to do it now, ponder it later, ask questions, consider it today. As Peter writes this to this group of people 30 years in the midst of their suffering... It's possible they may have lost sight of this truth. It's possible this morning you may have lost sight of this truth. So maybe you sit there and you say, well, Tim, I I know Jesus. I've done what you just said. But if you're honest, if you would be transparent for a moment, you're not living that out. You're not experiencing this living hope. And to that, we get some reminders from Peter. Verse 18, by itself, there's so many implications of this. I'm just gonna give you five, and so you can write these down. The first one is this, that Jesus suffered. You can just write that Jesus suffered. That's implication one, that he knows what it's like. He can relate to you even in the midst of your suffering because he suffered. The second thing is that Jesus died for sins, that your sin required payment, that it required a sacrifice, And Jesus gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice, that he died for you in your place for your sin, to pay for your sin, and that Jesus is righteous. Why is the sacrifice of Jesus so different than any other sacrifice before, than any other sacrifice since? Why is it so unique? Why is it so important? Why do we talk about it every Sunday? It's because Jesus is the perfect son of God. That he died in your place. The righteous for the unrighteous. He's perfect. He's without sin, so he's able to pay for sin. Do you see that? So Jesus is righteous. The fourth thing is that Jesus is our mediator. He brings us to God. He introduces us to God. So I don't know if you've ever met someone or been introduced to someone that you admired. Maybe a celebrity, maybe a a teacher of yours. Maybe somebody else in your life that you've been introduced to them, and, and maybe there was some awe associated with that. Maybe there's some admiration associated with that. Maybe there's some nervousness associated with that, because you finally get to meet this person. Well, for me, that person was a pastor. and I know that's weird, but you're just going to have to go with me. I'm a pastor, I'm weird, right? And so I really wanted to meet this pastor, this guy I really looked up to. And so I was at a conference, and it was that whole tug of war like you experience in dating, which is kind of awkward. And I'm like telling my wife, like, should I go talk to him? Should I not? What am I going to say if I talk to him? What is he going to say? Just bear with me. I already said I was weird, right? I prefaced it. And so finally, I get the opportunity, and somebody else introduced me to him. And so I had no choice at this point. I was going to meet him. And he introduces me to him, and I'm talking to him, and I have nothing to say. Like, all the things I thought I would say, I have nothing to say in that moment except for, hey, man. <laughs> hey, yeah, that, that was amazing, this conference. It's, I'm really glad to be here. I'll just say that. And he's like, well, it's so nice to meet you. And I'm like, it's really, really nice to meet you as well. And then that was it. But listen, I was so excited to meet him. There was so much anticipation. I'd read his books, heard his sermons, and all those things. And I was sitting there, introduced by him, confronted with him. Whoever that is for you, whoever that is for me, you need to know that Jesus introduces us to the God of the universe through his cross. That if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have been brought to, introduced to, the most important person in the entire universe, God. That you have been introduced to God. That whatever admiration you have for a celebrity, whatever all you have, it should triple, quadruple, eternally, For God. If you know Jesus this morning, is that the way you see your relationship with God? That you have access to the creator of the universe, the one who is before all time, the one who knows everything about you. You have direct access now through Jesus Christ. You've been brought to God. The fifth thing is that Jesus' death is sufficient. Jesus' death is sufficient. I love that Peter says Jesus suffered once for sins. And maybe you're thinking, well, of course. Of course, you can only die once, right? What's so significant about that? But Peter's speaking to something more. And that something more is this idea of completion. Completion, that it was final. That Jesus died once for all of sin, past, present, and future. That it happened once. That it was done for good, that he will not do it again, amen? If you know Jesus, you should say amen to that, that we should rejoice in that, that we should cling to that truth, that he died once, that he will not do it again, no matter what you did last night, no matter the things you're thinking, well, nobody else knows about these things. I haven't shared these things with anybody. I mean, Tim, if you knew me, I shouldn't be here right now. I mean, the rest of these people, I'm not like them. If you knew what I've done, if you knew what's been done to me, you wouldn't be saying it was once for all. Peter makes it emphatic that Jesus died once. It is complete. It's not lacking in anything. It was all fulfilled in him. God's wrath was poured out completely on Jesus Christ. If you didn't say amen earlier, you can say it later today. That needs to resonate within your heart. That needs to stir you up to affections for Jesus Christ because of what he has done for you. You need to know that nothing else can do this that nothing else can bring you to God, that religion can't bring you to God, that tradition can't bring you to God, that morality can't bring you to God, that as happy as I am to see you here this morning, that coming to church can't bring you to God. But how many of us live like they can? I know for me, my family and I, we we took the leap as a family of five for the first time, and we flew on an airplane. So our third child is 10 months old, and we said, hey, we we have to fly together. We're going to do this thing. And I don't know where we got the courage for that, but we did. And at the beginning of that trip, my kids, my two older kids, were really strong, and they want to carry some luggage. And so that lasted about 20 seconds. And, of course, when that happens, Daddy picks up the slack, right? Right? And so I got bags in every nook and cranny of my body. I got bags in between my fingers. I got the claw working. I got them in between these two fingers. I got them strapped around my shoulders. I'm rolling, rolling bags behind me. And some of you are like, well, I don't feel sorry for you too much. You have rolling bags. I mean, that's the life of luxury, Tim. But listen, you know this if you've ever been to an airport specifically, is those rolling bags are the worst. I mean, it's the rolling bags that when you're coming around the corner and they flip over on their side, and it's always in front of the elevator with it wide open, and there's a group of people. You have an audience waiting to see if you can complete this rolling of the bag. And it flips over on its side, and you got all these other bags, and this was me. And you're thinking, how can I carry all these bags? And the people in the elevator are rooting you on, like, come on, you can do it. And somebody secretly is pushing the close the door button. (laughs) He's not going to make it, right? It's not going to happen. How many of you, does that describe your spiritual life? That you are lugging around bags. You got several of them. That some of you, you got this big bag on your shoulder of good works. And all the things you've ever accomplished in life. And you're carrying this heavy bag of good works around in your life. And you're thinking, this will show them. I mean, I've done some good things. I'm not a bad person. I'm not an unrighteous person. Look at these works. Look at these good works in my life. And you're carrying that around. And you're lugging it around. And maybe some of you have this other bag, and you you pick it up, and you begin to lug it around. And maybe it's some things that you're not proud of. Maybe it's some things that you try to hide, but you're you're lugging it around, and you're saying, I I don't want to let go of these quite yet. I mean, these things are pleasurable. These things provide joy and fun in my life. And and I know I I know Jesus, and I know these things aren't the best, but I'm going to keep lugging around this bag, and eventually I'll set it down. Eventually, I'll drop it, but it'll be when I graduate from college. It'll be when I get married. It'll be when we have kids. It'll be when I change careers. Eventually, I'll let these sinful pleasures go, but for now, I'm going to drag them around. Some of you have this future to-do list that you pick up, and you pile things in there, and you drag it around, and you say, when I accomplish these things... When I get right with God, when I read more, when I understand more, then I'll let this bag down. How many of you, does that describe your relationship with God? And listen, let's just be transparent for just a moment. If that's you, you're exhausted. I think of Martin Luther a great theologian, he was a monk, and as he examined the holiness of God and the expectations on his life, at one point, this is a paraphrase, but he basically said to the idea of loving God, he said, love God, I hate God, because he could never live up to this standard, and he realized that, and it weighed heavy on him like luggage that you carry around, and some of you are in that place that you're trying to do this thing by yourself. And listen, you were never meant to do that. And so Jesus, in the midst of that, if that's you this morning, Jesus in the midst of that, listen to me, he comes alongside you as you carry around all this luggage, all these good works, all these things you're not proud of, all these things that you have to do in the future, he comes alongside you and he says, put the bags down. Put the bags down. That all of the heavy lifting has been done for you. That he did it on the cross once for all. Listen, that should bring a few things in your life. One, it should bring rest. When's the last time you experienced supernatural rest in that truth? Were you can sit here this morning and you can just have a, a smile on your face. That when we sing, oh, how he loves us, any thought that this is a trite song and maybe we're just singing this to feel good about yourself, that that leaves your mind and you just say, no, he does love us. That he came to die for me. There's rest in that like you've never experienced before. Have you experienced that? The second thing is Victory have you experienced victory listen i don't say all this to diminish sin and in fact it should do the opposite it should make you run as far away from sin as possible and run to god because you have victory you don't have to go back there that thing in your life that won't let go that cycle you keep returning to of lust of pride of gossip of approval you're free you have victory Not because of you, but because of the cross of Christ. Have you experienced that victory? The third thing is mission. If we believe this, receive this, and walk in this, you're going to experience and participate in the mission of God. Because as your affections are stirred up for this, as you are wowed by this, you're not going to be able to help but declare and demonstrate this truth to other people. As we approach Easter, there's no better time to do this. Everybody's going to go to church on Easter. They're going to show up to some church. What if you invited them to our church? What if you explained the gospel to them? What if you said it's more about candy, more than about candies and pastels? And you talked about Jesus. A few weeks ago, we gave you a list of 12 things, simple ways to enter into that conversation. I would encourage you to participate in the mission of God based on what you've experienced. All you have to do, listen, All you have to do is talk about what you have seen and what you have heard. Start there. If we believe this, it will drastically change our lives. This is one of the most powerful things in all of the Bible. If you're new to church or new to Jesus, it's a good Sunday to come. I'm glad you're here. As we continue, uh, we move from powerful to confusion. And so let's look at it together. Verse 19 It says, in which he went, that's Jesus, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I just quoted Martin Luther, um, but I'm gonna quote him again. He said this about these three verses or two verses. He said, a wonderful text this is, in a more obscure passage, wonderful and obscure. Usually those two don't go together, but Luther links the two. He says, it's more obscure perhaps than any other in the New Testament. And I love his conclusion. So that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. So Martin Luther um, kind of helped change history in, in regard to Christianity and the Bible And he's saying, I don't know what this means. And so I say that to lower your expectation of me this morning. (laughs) No, I say that to recognize that, listen, sometimes scripture can be confusing. The beauty of going through a book of the Bible is we can hit a powerful text and then we can hit a confusing text. Uh, Listen, that should show you how vast God is. We've done that a few times. I've said this a few times now in the book of 1 Peter And so it shouldn't discourage you, but it should want you to, cause you to wrestle with Scripture. It should cause you to read it on your own. It should cause you to ask more questions. It should cause you to realize how big God is. And so I hope that does that for you this morning. The main point uh, is not confusing. It's clarified. It's culminated in verse 22. Look at the verse. It says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so while the precise details may be confusing, the primary declaration of this text is not. It clearly states that Jesus is victorious in the midst of suffering. And so Peter's reminding us, he's reminding the, his audience at the time, he's reminding you that even in the midst of suffering, he rules and he reigns. That doesn't change. But some of you are thinking, yeah, I get that, but what about those spirits in prison? You stopped listening to everything I just said. What about Noah? Where's that come from? And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at three common views of this. If you want to, you can take notes. We'll send out resources to your community group leaders as well to follow up on this. But three primary views that we see when we come to this passage. The first is this, that after Christ died, He descended into hell to preach to fallen people to give them a second chance to believe and repent. And those people that would say that, extract that from this passage to mean that everybody gets a second chance. That death is not the end. That at some point, maybe it's purgatory, maybe it's something else, in some way, people who have died will get a second opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. And so when you hear that, Have some of you heard that? Yeah? No? All right, we'll just move on. Okay, just kidding. Uh, When you hear that, if you have seen a documentary or you've heard that in conversation or whatever, you need to always go back to, in any controversial passage like that, you need to always go back to this principle. That scripture interprets scripture. That specifically that clear scripture interprets unclear scripture. That you need to know that these verses, these couple of verses, that no one else refers to them. John doesn't, Paul doesn't, nobody else fleshes this out. We can't go to another book and, and flesh all this out. And so we look at this two verses and we look at all the other verses about other things. And we, we use them to interpret these two. And so with that... The reason I don't hold to this view and I would say you shouldn't hold to this view and and no one who's a follower of Jesus should hold to this view is because it implies that there's a second chance at salvation after death which goes against scripture. Two places primarily, Luke 16 and Hebrews 9. Mark those down, read those later on your own. But scripture is emphatic that man dies once and after that faces judgment. That man dies once and then comes judgment. And so this would imply that that's not true, and Scripture doesn't compromise itself. It doesn't contradict itself. And so we know that this view can't be true because man dies once, and then comes judgment. So there's no second chance. We have a chance, an extended, patient God who gives us a huge chance to trust in him and believe believe in him while we're alive, and it doesn't happen after we're dead. The next two views I would say are very possible and Bible-believing Christians differ on these views. As I read and listened to different people, um, it's kind of split. And so if you're split on this or if you believe one or the other, uh, that's okay. Uh, like I said with Luther, this is a confusing text that if we don't land on, it's, it's okay. Jesus still rules and reigns. And then we come to this concept again, another principle of closed hand versus open hand. Closed hand versus open hand. Some things in the Bible... Some things in our faith are closed-hand. These are things like the death of Jesus Christ. These are things like the resurrection of Jesus. If you were to say to me, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not so sure that Jesus died, I would say you don't know Jesus, because that's a closed-handed issue. Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, we would say that's a core doctrine of our faith, that's closed-handed, that's the character and nature of God. There's other things that would be open-handed, and this is one of them. And so as we enter into these two views, I'm gonna tell you what I believe, okay? I'm gonna tell you where I, I land, but just know I won't die for this, and you shouldn't either. In fact, if somebody comes into your community group this week and says, I've got it. I've seen the documentary. I figured it out. Just shoot me an email about that, and we can have a further conversation. Um, So here's two views with an open hand. The second view is this, that after Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to fallen angels to proclaim to them that he had triumphed over sin in the grave. It's the eternal, I told you so. That Christ, after he resurrects, goes back to fallen angels who are now in prison. And he says, see, I beat death. I proclaimed it to you then, and it's happened. I've risen victoriously over sin death in the grave, and that Jesus would go back after he ascends and preach that to fallen angels who are now in hell. And so that's, that's one view that a lot of people hold, and, and you can see how they hold it from other parts of Scripture. I don't want to get too far in it to distract us, but that's one view that people take this, these couple verses to mean. The third view is the way I go with this, and it's this, that when Noah was building the ark, you see that reference to Noah? the eight people that got on the ark with him that were saved? That when Noah was building the ark, that Christ in his spirit preached through Noah to the unbelievers at the time. So you know the story of Noah. Noah builds an ark. It took him a really, really long time to build it. If you've just seen the movie, you need to actually read the story. It's true. That one's not. So if you read the story of Noah in the book of Genesis, you'll see it. It took a long time for him to build this ark. And in that time, that people were disobedient, unrepentant to God. They didn't believe Noah, that this flood was coming primarily because he was building an ark in the desert. But as this comes, God gives them an opportunity to respond and they don't. And so what this text is saying is that Jesus, in his spirit, Jesus is eternal, right? He's been in existence for all of time. And that in his spirit, he preaches through Noah. To these people, they don't repent, so now they are spirits in prison. They're people in hell. And so this is where I lean primarily because it's the most simple, direct way I can connect the dots with seeing Noah and the implications of that. Glad to talk more about this later. But listen, here's the elephant in the room: is that there is a prison, there is a judgment. That there is a hell. And so if I've lost you, you need to refocus. If you're confused, we can talk later. But you need to refocus in that there is a, a hell. There is a prison. That man dies once and then he's in judgment. That you spend eternity somewhere and it's either in heaven or it's in hell. And some of you think, well, that's, that's a little harsh. That's a little mean. And No, it's the most loving thing I could tell you. Because the Bible teaches that. Because Jesus talks about hell. And so if we have people that are on their way there and we don't tell them, we don't proclaim it, that's the most unloving thing we can do. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. And I tell you lovingly that in the end, there is a judgment. And that you either can cling to the blood of Christ And experience an eternal relationship with him. Or you can be separated from him for eternity. That's why this is so important. That's why we talk about this every Sunday. That's why your response is so urgent. It's why it breaks my heart to talk to people who say, hey, down the road. I know that's true, but one day I'll figure that out. Right now, I kind of want to live my life and do my thing, but one day, I'll trust in Jesus. It breaks my heart to see that because at one point, there is going to be judgment. At one point, you're going to die, and it's going to come, and you don't know when that is. It breaks my heart to hear people say, "I, I just need to read a little bit more. I just need to understand a little bit more. I just need to do a little more because, listen, you don't need to do any of those things. You need Jesus Christ. That's the all sufficient payment for your sin. He bridges the gap between you and God. And no one else can. Nothing else can bring you to God except for Jesus Christ. So you need Jesus. My son, Ashwin, who's three, um, just like every weekend, he gets up at 5 a.m. The rest of the week, we're pulling him out of bed. But on Saturday and Sunday, 5 a.m., wake-up call, count on it. And this morning was no different. And he comes in, and all I hear, and you can hear it down the stairs, is, mommy, mommy. Gets frustrated. Mommy. And I say, somewhat coherently, what do you need, bud? And he says, I need mommy. Duh. I just said it. Only mommy would suffice in that moment. It didn't matter that he needed cereal or milk or some other things and that I could get that for him. He didn't want me. He needed mommy, right? Listen, I say that to help you realize you need Jesus Do you know that? Do you know your need for Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, have you recognized your need for Jesus that nothing else will suffice? If you know Jesus, are you constantly reminded of that need? That you're in need of him more and more every day? That's why you need to gather with a body of believers. Do not forsake that, Scripture says. It's so important because you you need Jesus. That's why you need to read Scripture. Because you need more and more of Jesus in your life to stir your affections for him. That only he will suffice. And so as we have an eternity in view, here's what you need. Jesus Christ, his death, the unrighteous or the righteous for the unrighteous... Once for all. So as we talk about spirits in prison and Noah, don't miss that. Don't miss that. While there's confusion in this passage, there's clarity in the cross of Christ. There's clarity in the cross of Christ. Do you see that? So we can talk more about spirits in prison and Noah, but I would love to talk more about Jesus. I'd love to introduce you to him this morning. That he's the cure to your disease. He's the solution to the problem. That nothing else will be that for you. That today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. You don't know when the end is coming for you. You don't. That today is that day. Trust in Christ, believe in him. Be saved from hell. Be entered into a right relationship with the God of the universe and experience heaven, experience eternity with him. I implore you to do, th- to do that this morning. As we wrap up the last couple of verses, verse 21, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. We've already said it, but verse 22 kind of caps all this off. It reminds us that Jesus is victorious over everything. That he's alive. That he's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And so what about that reference to baptism? It says baptism saves you. It says baptism, which corresponds to this. And so we want to ask, well, what's this? Well, it's what Peter just talked about: the Ark, Noah. And so what Peter is saying is that the water of baptism is like the water of Noah's day. That is, we are immersed into the water. So if you've never been baptized or if you've never seen a baptism baptism, what happens is you're immersed into water, you go down, and then you come back up. And so what Peter is saying is that just like Noah and the ark, that baptism is like the waters of Noah's day, that when we're immersed into the water, we're reminded that we deserve death for sins, just like those who died in the flood. Does that make sense? So we're reminded of that as we go in, that we deserve death, just like the people in Noah's day that didn't repent, that didn't look towards God. And as we come up out of the water, we're reminded that we're saved by Jesus, Just like Noah and the eight people on the ark. That we come up out of the water. We rejoice. We are victorious because Jesus is victorious. He's made alive for us. So we experience new life in him. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that the act of baptism itself saves you. Trust me, if that were true, we would have a tank over here full of water every Sunday. And I would just rally you guys all in and see how many we could fit in that tank. And we'd overflow it every Sunday. If that was true, it would be so much easier. My job would be so much easier if I just had to get you in water to remove some external dirt. But again, Scripture interprets Scripture. And in other places in Scripture, a really important distinction that we see is that you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We say that. So we're doing a baptism in a few weeks. As we baptize you... We'll have two people take you under the water, just real briefly, and come right back up. And before they do that, they'll say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize in the name of Jesus that water by itself has no weight to cleanse you of your sin. That it's a heart issue. That Jesus is the cure for your disease. He's the solution for your problem. How do we know that? Because three verses earlier, I was yelling at you and Peter was yelling at you that Christ died once for sin. Same guy. Same author. A few verses later. So he's not saying baptism saves you. That it's a picture. That it's an outward picture of an internal truth. And so listen, if you've never been baptized, if maybe you were baptized as a baby but you don't remember, you've never been baptized since you followed Jesus, I would encourage you to consider that. I would challenge you to consider that, to publicly identify your faith, to say that I follow Jesus, I'm victorious, I have new life in Jesus. And we could celebrate that with you in just a few weeks as we celebrate the life of Jesus on Easter. Love to answer more questions about that. The last thing I'll say about it is this, that he said is, says it's an appeal. An appeal, that word means to make a request, typically to the public. And so that's what baptism is. You're publicly affirming, saying, we're affirming you and saying, you put your trust in Jesus alone. It's an appeal to the public of what you've already experienced in your heart. So how do we live this? This was a very difficult text. It was very difficult to give our production lead, Chris, who does a fantastic job. It was very difficult to give him an outline for this passage. It was very difficult to give some application points, which is what we typically try to do. And so I'm going to give them to you now, and it's going to be really succinct. And so write these down. It's this, that we want to, in response to this, believe, receive, and walk. So what do we do with this? We believe, we receive, and then we walk in this. Here's what I mean, if you're not a Christian, you need to take that first step of belief. You can't receive it, you can't walk in this, especially in the midst of suffering if you haven't believed it first. You need to do that, you need to trust in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, and you're saying, I know about these things, but they don't ring true in my life, then I'm still carrying around, lugging around these bags, you need to receive it. You need to let these bags go. And then the last thing is you need to walk in this. How do we walk in it? One of the ways we do that, we do it every Sunday, is we take communion to your right and to your left. That when we dip the bread in the juice or the wine, that we're walking in the truth, that we have believed this, that his blood, that his body has paid for our sins. You walk in that. That's when we do that every Sunday. Thankfulness. Thankfulness isn't just a prayer before dinner. It's something you should walk in every day, in the morning, at night. You should write down those five implications from verse 18. I hope you wrote them down. And you should thank God for those every single day. You should write other things down, truths in scripture that you have believed, that you have received, and you should walk in them by thanking God actively One of the the simple things that we do uh, is as a community group, during the week, we have dinner every week. And it's such a great time because we walk in celebration in that dinner. Because the beautiful thing about that dinner is not that we're eating a casserole. It's not that somebody brought a salad. It's definitely not that. (laughs) We're celebrating that the people around this table share a common unity and that we're free full and forgiven in Jesus. I would encourage you to, to walk in celebration, to have dinner with your community group. You don't have to do that, you can do something else. Have dinner as a family, to experience ways, go up on a mountain, whatever you need to do, to walk in what you have received and what Peter has proclaimed. The last thing as far as walking in this, that you would get baptized. Easter is one of my favorite Sundays because we not only celebrate that Jesus is alive, we celebrate that we are alive because of him. And we get to see new people experience that. When they come out of the water, everybody cheers and everybody claps because it's so profound. We're celebrating what's already been done in their heart. They have a living hope now that nothing will shake them. They have that forever. And so if you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you to do so. You can find more information at the Connect desk. We have handouts, one-pagers that explain clearly, literally what happens when you get baptized, why we get baptized. Do that before you leave. Talk to me before you leave. Let's put our hope in Jesus as we respond to Peter this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the power in these verses And I pray for understanding in the midst of the confusion of these verses. God, I pray that this would cause us, force us, compel us to cry out to you. Father, even as we sing and take communion, that we would cry out to you in thankfulness and celebration for what you have accomplished on our behalf. God, I pray that the men and women in this room wouldn't get distracted by a couple confusing verses, but they would be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. That you're with us this morning, we sing to you, we celebrate you, we rest because of all that you have done for us, that we can put the bags down, whatever they are, I pray that whatever they are this morning over these men and women, that they would, they would put them down that they would realize that all of the heavy lifting has already been done by Jesus. And so, God, we ask for your help now as we celebrate you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray that. Amen.